welcome to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast, conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now, podcasting from the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center in Chicagoland, here are your hosts, Ed Stetzer and Daniel Yang. Welcome to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast, where we're helping Christian leaders navigate and lead through the cultural issues of our day. My name is Daniel Yang, the director of the Sen Institute, and we're excited to have with us today Dominique Du Bois-Gilliard. Dominique is the Director of Racial Righteousness and Reconciliation for the Love, Mercy, Do Justice Initiative of the Evangelical Covenant Church. I just, I just feel like I need to jump in and say that is the longest title. It's an awesome title. Okay, He's also an ordained minister and has served in pastoral ministry in Atlanta, Chicago, and Oakland. Dominique also serves on the board of directors for the Christian Community Development Association, and his latest book is Subversive Witness, Scripture's Call to Leverage Privilege, which we'll talk about today. But before we do that, let's hear from our host, editor-in-chief of Outreach Magazine and the executive director of Wheaton College, Billy Graham Center, Ed Stetzer. Hey, it is good to have you listening in as well. Can I just encourage you, as always, uh, make sure you leave a review uh, at any of the places where you listen to your podcast. We always do appreciate that. It helps people to find out more about the podcast. And we're, we're excited today to have Dominique with us and to talk, well, even the title of the book is going to catch people's attention. In fact, I, I think what's interesting, Dominique, is a lot of people who who might need to have this conversation will actually resist engaging the conversation because the word, so you, you did this in purpose. You chose this word for a reason. I mean, you're probably in conversation with your publisher. So let's talk about it. So as soon as the word privilege is uttered or in the title of a book, people often tune out of the conversation. So let's start there. Can you define privilege for us? And then I'm going to ask you a couple of follow-ups related to that. So talk to us about what privilege is. Yeah. So first I want to talk about what it's not. Um, Privilege is not about condemnation, shaming, or guilting one another into coerced actions. Um, I think privilege, the conversation of privilege that I'm trying to have in this book is rooted in trying to have a sober assessment of the fact that we live in a world that has ascribed currency to bodies uh, based off different elements of embodiment. So be it able-bodiedness, be it mental cognition, be it race, gender, uh, there are cur- there's a social currency that's been ascribed to how bodies are formed and shaped in this country in particular. And because of that, there has been the creation of this kind of sliding scale of humanity that is uh, diametrically opposed to the biblical truth we find in Genesis 127 that tells us that all people, regardless of their diversity are equitably made in the image of God. And so we're trying to reckon with, in the conversation about privilege, the way in which our nation uh, in its law, custom, and culture has inscribed this kind of sliding scale of humanity. And Mm -hmm. it uh, distorts everything from our constitution that refers to indigenous people as merciless Indian savages to legislation that is legally classified Black people as property rather than people. Um, And so I'm trying to get us to reckon with that and to say as Christians, our faith calls us into a certain way of engaging the world when this is the status quo or has been historically the status quo and we still see remnants of that uh, distorting how we commune with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay, we certainly have um, probably in the last few years, Imago, Imago Day has been, I don't even, I don't know that I heard that 10 years ago. I mean, I knew what it was from seminary, but I don't know that I heard, but now everyone's like, people are made in the image of God, worthy of dignity and respect. That's a good thing. But at the same time, when you point out some things like you're pointing out now, which is, you know, you mentioned the U.S. Constitution, you mentioned um, you mentioned how people are treated, you know, based on their their bodies. Um, when you mention privilege, though, people are like, OK, I believe everyone's made in the image of respect. But are you saying I have 
more opportunity. And then of course people go to their own narrative. You know, I, you know, I, I, I grew up poor, someone might say, or, or uh, so how do we define what privilege people have or don't have? And yeah, you do this in the book very clearly, but, but for people who haven't read the book, let me also mention too, uh, the name of the book too is, is includes the title privilege, but subversive witness. And I want to come back to that in just a little bit, because I think witness is a key part of it, but let's push it a little more. So how, how do I, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm white. So yep. do I have privilege just based on that, even though I grew up and we were on public assistance at times when I was a kid, that kind of stuff. These are the questions that people ask. Yeah. So I think historically, if we try to unpack what we're talking about, we're talking about the fact that there has not been equitable access and opportunity for all people in the history of this country. And some of that exclusionary access um, has created uh, disparities that we still see at play within our communities today. So for example, um, of the $120 billion worth of new housing funds that was sub subsidized by the federal government between 1934 and 1962, money that was supposed to be, go to in, be able to go to anybody who was run, returning home from the war as a perk of being a veteran, less than 2% of the funds went to non-white families. And so when we look at the housing inequality, when we look at the wealth gap in our nation, it's inextricably connected to that exclusionary uh, distribution of funds that was aligned with a racial ideology uh, that has created, again, the disparities that continue to loom within our communities. So uh, when I talk about privilege, privilege is not about saying that your life has always been easy. Privilege is not about saying that you have never endured hardships. What it is saying though, is that, as you've struggled to overcome whatever you've overcome, your struggle has been different and uh, in many ways not blocked by the same things that people who don't have the same privileges that you have uh, would have had to overcome to try to uh, overcome in a similar situation as you. Uh, I, love, I love to lift up the story of Joseph because I think it's a beautiful example of this. So Joseph is somebody who's born with a super, silver spoon in his mouth, but ultimately he endures hardship because his brother is, you know, um, essentially sell him into trafficking. And he endures, uh, you know, humiliation, persecution. He is discriminated against. And God lifts him out of that place. And when God lifts him out of that place, God places him into a position of privilege. Um, and in placing him in the position of privilege, he puts him in the second most powerful place with a position within the land. And Joseph has the opportunity when his brothers come back before him, where he's now in a position of privilege and power to ultimately exploit that privilege to, to enact revenge, uh, to get get his just desserts because his brothers did him wrong. He has the position and power now to do them wrong, but he remembers his privilege has a missional purpose. And the missional purpose of his privilege is to actually help the people of God uh, navigate themselves out of this famine, which otherwise they wouldn't have been able to do without the wisdom of Joseph. And so what I'm trying to really argue in the book and lay out for folks is to say that Privilege is a real thing. We live in a society that is fallen. We all can name that. But when we talk about the particularities of the fallenness, that's where it gets a little fuzzy and for a lot of folks. And what I'm trying to say is if we take history seriously, there is no way to deny the fact that not all people have been equitably affirmed, treated with dignity and humanity in our country's history because of this reality of privilege that's connected to our bodies. And so as the church, instead of trying to uh, sidestep the elephant in the room, 
there's a more faithful way to proceed. And that more faithful way to proceed is to turn description. And the real chief thing that it has to say about privilege is that privilege is real. And we're always going to be confronted with the temptation to exploit privilege for selfish benefit. But if we're truly people who modeled our lives after our crucified and resurrected Lord and Savior, then we see Philippians 2 gives us this alternative vision of what we do when we actually have access to power and influence and how do we ultimately live in a Christ-like disposition where we take the interest and the needs of others before our own and we understand that privilege is something that allows us to uh, expand the kingdom and sacrificially love our neighbors. You know, our listeners are pastors and church leaders, and um, they they probably have read for themselves, you know, some things you've talked about, the historical uh, examples of privilege. And then even though some of the empirical, uh, you know, data for privilege, you know, Phil Vischer put out a, a video last year about the VeggieTales guy, uh, the VeggieTales guy <laughs> about mass incarceration. We had uh, an interview with him about that. And, and so like people understand this and yet in their churches, you know, there's a denial of privilege sometimes. So can you, can you talk about why that that's happening, why that might be happening? And then more importantly, like what are the consequences of denying the existence of privilege? Yeah, so for your listeners who don't know me, um, in my role, what I do is I serve as a pastor to pastors, helping pastors make connections between scripture, discipleship, and scripture's commission to be ambassadors of reconciliation in a divided world. Uh, I do that for our roughly 880 congregations throughout North America. Um, and as I go to congregations and on the ground with people, one of the things I've noticed is there's really three tendencies that emerge when the conversation of privilege pop up. The first tendency is to deny that privilege is real and to denounce the conversation as unbiblical. Right. Um, the second tendency is that you have leaders who kind of acknowledge that privilege is real, but they also acknowledge that trying to navigate the conversation is too tricky of a terrain, and they ultimately don't want to risk losing members or losing funding to have this conversation. And then the third response I see is where pastors and congregants both acknowledge the privilege is real and they want to lean in and do the hard work of trying to reckon with it. But in the midst of that reckoning, the revelations are so profound and so intense that it actually ends up leaving a number of people in the congregation with a kind of miss missional paralysis because they're weighed down by everything that they've understood in the reckoning. And Again, I believe the scripture offers us a fourth way. And so, so much of what I'm about to do about is like, how do we realize the ways in which the church's witness is hamstrung? And how do we like try to problem solve and cast a vision for a more faithful uh, engagement with scripture that allows us to participate and demonstrate the gospel in innovative and surprising ways, as opposed to shrinking back uh, from the, the watershed moments in our day and time. And so when we don't press into the conversations of privilege, then I think what we allow ourselves to do is to be content with anti-gospel realities that surround us. And we miss missional opportunities to live in love in a way that declares to the world that we belong to Jesus. And I really root that in John 13, 34 and 35, which says that the world will know that we belong to Jesus by how we choose to live in love, by how we choose to love one another. And I think there are a few opportunities that allow us to demonstrate that we belong to Jesus. Jesus by when we see suffering and injustice happening in communities that don't directly impact our own, but we choose to step up, show up, and speak up in love because we know that love is what compels the Christian to live faithfully in response to the love that was first extended to us by Jesus. And so I believe um, more than anything, 
what is at risk is that we become um, content with the status quo, which again is not aligned with the inbreaking kingdom. And we, we, we get a reputation of being uh, the ministers in uh, the story of the Good Samaritan who had other priorities and agendas and um, things that we thought were more important than stopping to, to aid our wounded neighbor on life's roadside. And I think when we're afraid to have this conversation, that's what so much of the church sees in us. They see people who have missional intentions and things that we think are more important than actually stopping and addressing uh, our wounded neighbors. And when they we live in that way, the world does not know that we belong to Jesus. And so we also miss out on missional opportunities. Um, and I love the, the passage, I'm talking too long, so I'm gonna stop, but I love a passage like <laughs> Acts 6, 1 through 7, where I, I, you know, there has been this, in too many of our congregations, there's this divorcing between evangelism and justice. And I love that passage because it actually tells us that those things were always meant to be inherently intertwined. And when the Acts Council is mature enough to acknowledge the discrimination in their midst and then respond to it in a faithful way, which meant that they had to actually restructure the table of power. It says that the gospel exploded in their community because people knew that the discrimination was going on and they were watching and waiting to see if the church had the integrity to do what it needed to do to address what was going on in their own in their own community. Um, people are watching and waiting when injustice and oppression or when our own house is in disorder in the church. They want to know that we have the integrity to live and love like Jesus. They wanna know that we have the integrity to repent and to confess and to actually turn back to God in a way that uh, produces fruit in our communities. And when it does, the evangelistic opportunities become off the charts because we're living in a time, honestly, and y'all know this, People ain't too concerned about what the church has to say. They want to see how the church is living and loving and engaging in the world. And when they see uh, the substance of our engagement, that's when people become more open to hearing the words. And so I think we have to we have to really reckon with the way in which we have divorced evangelism and justice all too often in our communities and find ways to reintegrate them because that's the only faithful biblical witness. And I like I like a lot, a lot, a lot of Bible in that answer. He did say he was going to like, be a shorter answer than he lied, and, <laughs> uh, but I'm, I'm actually good with that because it's like that's a that's a sermon length, and I, I like I like a lot of Bible in there. But I think that's part of the key. So because because I think when people go to their own personal experience, example I gave intentionally at the beginning was you know being on food stamps as a kid. Um, but I also and you'll you'll get the reference you'll get the reference. I also grew up in Levittown, mm -hmm. which people will Google. You'll find out how that relates to even this conversation in very yep. significant ways. Um, so. So much of the book, and again, the book is Subversive Witness, Scripture's Call, Scripture's Call to Leverage Privilege. It's a lot of Bible. Yeah. And so let's talk about what are some, you've already given one example, what are some other examples from the Bible that support the, well, you give more than one example, that support the idea of some people being more privileged than others, and how does that relate to us today? Yeah, so one of my favorite examples is Exodus 6, one, Exodus 1, 6 through 2, 10, where we have the story of Moses being born. Um, and Moses is born in an oppressive Egyptian empire whose wealth and prosperity is all predicated upon the dehumanization, subjugation, and ultimately enslavement of their Hebrew neighbors. Um, and the text talks about how Pharaoh's fear it really starts to compel him to intensify the oppression to the point that he ultimately enacts a law that says that all Hebrew boys must be put to death just because of their gender and their ethnic identity. Um, that's another concept that I know a lot of our listeners are a little 
fuzzy around intersectionality when there's two different forms of embodiment that we have to talk to to understand how it uniquely oppresses a particular demographic. So okay, you got you got, you got you got to, you got to back up the bus on that for a second because you know <laughs> I'm just barely getting people to talk about privilege and now yeah, you're talking yeah. about intersectionality. But, so so again, we're talking about two way or more than two ways. So but yep. to define an intersectionality because you 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 use the term there, you also yep. talk about it elsewhere and then come back to the rest of your answer. Give yeah. us a little more on that. So with the Hebrews, all Hebrews were uh, exploited as enslaved people, but right. not all Hebrews were going to be put to death because of this legislation. Right. It took two things. It took being a Hebrew and it took being a male. So there was two different points of embodiment where they intersect. And in that intersection, Hebrew boys experienced a particular kind of dehumanization and I would say oppression under the, the Egyptian empire. Right. And so... Um, and so in that, though, um, we see that um, life in the empire was categorically different for Hebrews than it was for people of Egyptian citizenship and uh, ethnicity. And we see that um, ultimately in this passage, one of the beautiful things is that we see that somebody who was really discipled into uh, a worldview of bigotry and uh, exclusion we see that the Holy Spirit actually troubles the waters of belonging. And actually part of the really good news of this passage is that people who were grown up and um, fostered in families where bigotry and hatred and exclusion were the norm, part of the good news of the gospel is that the gospel has the power to liberate us from that. Like we don't have to continue to live into this this tradition into this familial expectation because there is something new that's possible. And so when Pharaoh's daughter ultimately comes and she encounters Moses, the first thing she says is this must be one of those Hebrew boys. So that tape's playing in her mind. She knows that if there's a Hebrew boy on the banks of the palace, that means somebody broke the law up the line. And it also means that she knows exactly what she's supposed to do with this Hebrew boy when she encounters him. But when she opens up the basket, she doesn't see somebody who's expendable. She doesn't see a person whose their only value lies in their ability to be uh, exploited for their labor. She sees somebody else who is, um, she wouldn't use this language, but we'll use it for her, also made in the image of God. She sees somebody else's whose humanity is tied to her own humanity. And that stirring of the spirit causes her to act against her own self-interest in a logical way. Um, she is willing to ultimately put her life and many of the privileges that she had within the Egyptian empire, her own father's reputation on the line to intervene on behalf of somebody that she was discipled to see as uh, somebody whose life didn't matter. And that's some, that's some of the goodness of the gospel that I think we sometimes forsake in the way that we've historically done biblical interpretation and we haven't set with the nuances of the text. Um, but it's a, it's a clear illustration of privilege. And I'll double down and give you one more really quick and this will be quick. Uh, Acts 16 um, verses 16 through 40 is another example where we see Paul and Silas who are ultimately incarcerated after they liberate a, a woman who's possessed by a demon who's being exploited by powerful men and ultimately in the midst of uh, being taken to trial, they are misidentified intentionally as Jews uh, because there is an understanding that uh, the Roman, in the Roman Empire and particularly the judicial system, uh, 
folks who are identified ethnically as Jews stand no chance of getting justice. So as soon as they are declared as Jews, it says the crowd starts to participate in their persecution. Uh, they are stripped, they are beaten with rods, and they're denied access to a trial before being falsely incarcerated. The text keeps going. It talks about, you know, the earthquake and the jailer and some of that stuff. But the key part for privilege is that it says that the magistrates were completely unconcerned about their mistreatment of Paul and Silas until they realized that they were Roman citizens. And then when they realized that they were Roman citizens, they became alarmed. And then they wanted to come and appease them and actually start to treat with them with humanity, dignity, and more civility. And that's what privilege is about. It's about uh, we live in a world where certain people, systems, and structures are only going to treat you as they ought to when they realize that you actually have some kind of status or standing. They won't just universally treat people with dignity and civility and humanity uh, because of the us and them or us versus them kind of mindset. Um, and the gospel is here to deconstruct that kind of worldview, that kind of way of thinking about belonging. And it's trying to help us to understand that we are all inter inherently interconnected and our flourishing is ultimately tied up in one another's flourishing. And as long as we uh, continue to abide by these ways of thinking about us and them and in and out, um, then we're not really understanding the fullness of the gospel. And we are leaving missional opportunities on the table where we get a chance again to demonstrate to the world who and whose we are by how we choose to live in love. So I wonder too, if I can follow up on that. And I wonder too, as people are listening or reading the book, I already mentioned, you know, the title, the word privilege will draw some people and repel a lot of other people. You're the Evangelical, Evangelical Covenant Church, which has made great strides in diversity, but also still predominantly white denomination, Swedish, Swedish background and more. Um, and you, you use word intersectionality, privilege. I mean, why not um, cast those words aside and talk about influence? I have influence, not privilege, or talk about that I, there are multiple categories that I you know, possess that, I, that I'm a part of as well. Um, why you use the term double down? Why use terms that have become very controversial in culture? Um, is that an important part of the persuasion for people to understand those terms or, or help, help me to think through that for people who might be wondering? Yeah, so I think there becomes this way in which if we as a church think that we get to redefine or define the terms of engagement on every single conversation, then we are only able to have a conversation amongst ourselves. And I think as we think about being missional, as we think about actually seeking the peace and the prosperity of our cities and our communities, we need to actually be able to have a more capacity to be able to engage the conversation in a way in which the conversation is being had without sub submitting our moral and ethical um, authority and convictions to have the conversation. So the conversation about privilege is really a conversation where we're trying to say, let's talk about the history and legacy of sin and the way in which sin has distorted the way that we see one another and relate to one another. And it has also distorted our laws, systems, and structures in a way that uh, they don't produce the same outcomes for all people because of the way that we have not actually helped people to realize uh, the way a person's individual sin, like Pharaoh, Pharaoh had individual sin, 
Um, and he surrounded himself with other people in his life who were not willing to help hold him accountable to do the work that he needed to do in regards to how he saw Hebrew people. So that individual sin that Pharaoh had uh, when he gets exalted to a position of Pharaoh starts to spill over and distort the, the, the legislation that he passes in his position of leadership. And so that individual sin ultimately morphs into systemic institutional sin that ultimately has an impact on all of the land and the people who reside within it. And so when we just want to like, well, let's talk about influence. Influence isn't enough because influence doesn't help us to understand um, how that continues to happen in our world where people who are in positions of power who aren't held accountable by other people to do the work that they actually need to do to refine their vision. Um, and really, I, I root this in uh, Romans 12, 2, where it tells us that we can't conform to the pattern of this world, but we have to be transformed through the renewing of our minds. Um, when we have our minds renewed, we realize that seeing another person as only having value when we can exploit them for their labor is not anything that's congruent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, and when we have people in our lives who hold us accountable, even if we start to be tempted in that direction, those sisters and brothers can say, hey, that's not of God. Let's take some time and pray and discern and recalibrate ourselves so that you can actually be a faithful leader. Um, and so I think we have to have some of these conversations with some of these kind with these with these words, because I think it actually starts to prepare us to do what we're commissioned by scripture to be ambassadors of reconciliation. If we are going to be repairers of the breach and ambassadors of reconciliation, we can't have a language that the rest of the world is not using, or we are we can't shy away from having conversations with the rest of the world about the reality of living in the midst of the fallenness that we we encounter. Um, it's not to say that we allow the rest of the world to dictate how we think about those things and define those things, but we need to have a way to define them as Christians that's rooted in the gospel, that's rooted mm -hmm. in biblical theological concepts like the Imago Dei. Um, and when we have that, then we can go out and actually effectively and efficiently have these conversations and be the transformative presence in the world that we're commissioned to be. I love that you mentioned Romans. I mean, Romans 15, Paul says, you know, we who are strong have the obligations to bear the failings of the weak, right? And a lot of it alludes to what you were just saying about uh, systemic uh, sin versus individual sin. So can you so oh, happy we could bring another term in. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Well, and privilege and then well, systemic, but and, I think it's essential. And I think this is important yeah, because yeah. what I want to introduce is the dynamic of as a pastor, when you're bringing in these terminologies to your churches, how, how do you, how do you introduce them? And then how do you nuance them from each other? Because we say systemic sin, individual sin, what do you mean? So can you, can you help the pastor, the church leader, you know, nuance the terms and then in, in a very tactical, you know, how would you advise a pastor to even begin to start these conversations within their church. Question, yeah, and great I, and question. I know that's two questions there, but I want to introduce. Oh, he's going to take like 20 minutes on those. I want to give a, a layer to that because oftentimes <laughs> when you ask a question like that, yeah. you know, people per perceive that as how do you help white congregations? But yeah. the reality is that there are a lot of immigrant congregations sure. yeah. that they would say systemic, you know, sin isn't real. You know, we came to this country, you know, in the right way. So there's, it's, it's multifaceted. So uh, help us think through these tactical things. Yeah, yeah. And I will say, and I, I also want to name the fact that one of the assumptions that some listeners may be having is that this is a book just about race. And when I talk about privilege, I intensely make the conversation much more expansive because yeah, you make that point very clear in the book. Yeah. Privilege is one of the uh, race is one of the privileges that we need to address, but it's not the only by far. Right. Um, so 
I'm going to go back to the Pharaoh example. So Pharaoh's individual sin was that he did not see Hebrews as equitably made in the image of God or reflective of the image of God. He did not see an economic system of slavery that said that my prosperity can come at the expense of somebody else's dehumanization as something that was problematic. Um, and he also didn't see it as problematic to disciple his daughter into a lifestyle and worldview of bigotry. Um, that was his individual sin. When his individual sin kind of gets metastasized, we ultimately see that the whole country is called to now abide by a worldview that says it's okay to enslave a whole nother group of people. They ultimately also have to submit to legislation that says that they're going to be killing Hebrew boys and they're without recourse uh, just because they're born Hebrew and male. Um, and you also have a reality where Folks who maybe had some ethical or moral resistance to it didn't feel the freedom to speak up and to actually, again, bear witness to what they actually might truly believe. Um, and so in that, you cast this whole shadow of sin over the whole Egyptian empire and folks who are living in it either are now going to be perceived as non-patriotic by raising their voice against what uh, the law has to say, or they're going to be perceived as disruptors who are not willing to fall in line with the wisdom of uh, an elected leader. And so that's, that's where we start to see the difference between individual and the systemic because the systemic and the legislation of the country Country now says it's not just about what Pharaoh believes anymore. This is what it means to be Egyptian citizen. And this mm -hmm. is what you're going to comply to as an Egyptian citizen. Um, your second question about how do we have these conversations? I am, and you can see it all over the book. I am all about having the difficult conversations, but leading with scripture. Like we don't have to reinvent anything. This stuff is all in the biblical text. And how do we ultimately talk about these difficult passages within scripture and allow scripture to be a lamp into our feet and a light into our path and actually start to give us a framework for how do we think about engaging some of these difficult topics? Um, that's the first thing. The second thing I would say is that um, don't introduce a difficult topic like this in a sermon. Um, I think this is because when it's just one way transactions, uh, then people who have questions don't have space to give voice to those questions. And then oftentimes they feel like there's no space for their wonderings. And then they take that energy somewhere else, or they ultimately say, this isn't a place that's trying to help really disciple me. It's trying to indoctrinate me. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we need to create more spaces within our Bible studies, within our small groups, when we're going to be talking about a new theme or pressing into a new issue to start to introduce some of the terminology with definitions, because one of the most important things is having common definitions, because everybody, if you don't have common definitions, everybody's just going to make their own assumption about what you mean when you use language like this, and that's going to lead to chaos. So I would say define the terms, have the time terms universally, universally kind of apply it across the board within your communal context. Open the conversation in a small group or in a Bible study 
And then as you start to see that folks are starting to connect the dots, then we start to move into preaching and uh, uh, preaching of the, these kind of concepts, liturgy that reinforces it, uh, worship music that actually helps gives us eyes to see and ears to hear what it would look like to ethically live this out in our context. And then uh, maybe you do some things like bring in a theologian like the two of you to kind of reinforce this or say like, hey, how can I make connections between this one passage that we find in the old, the New Testament, and where might the roots of this be in the old as well? Um, and because I think we also need to help people have a more um, a more holistic understanding of the arc of the gospel and what the gospel is ultimately moving towards, and um, and how our participation and demonstration is a part of that trajectory, and where the spirit is kind of willing the newness of the kingdom into the existence within worldly empires. Okay, so um, I just can hear somebody saying, I just want to care for widows and orphans in time of their distress. I don't feel the need yep. or the desire or the call to address all these other issues. Can I just call my congregation to serve the poor? Why do I have to get into privilege right in the title, right? Again, yep. title of the book is subversive witness scripture is called a leverage privilege or any of these other things. Let me just help people. I mean, and, and again, I'll give and I'll serve. Isn't that enough? Yeah, so that's where Acts 6, 1 through 7 comes in again. Uh, and so I'll, I'll highlight it. So this is what they, all they were trying to do. It was a missional church that they were bringing people to faith in Christ, but they were blind to the fact that there was discrimination going on in their midst when all they were trying to do was carry on this prophetic tradition from the Old Testament of caring for the most vulnerable amongst them. Well, what happens is that there were two different widows who are ultimately receiving resources from this food distribution program. And because there were two different widows, uh, scripture pay, takes note to help us see that the two different sets of widows were having di a divergent experience within the program. You had Hebraic widows who were cultural insiders with direct access to the city and the church's dominant culture, customs, and languages. Um, and then you had Hellenistic widows who uh, really were Jews who came from Greek-speaking cities outside and towns outside of Jerusalem. And when they returned, they returned to the city as cultural outsiders. They felt as if their outsider status was causing them to be overlooked and marginalized in the church's distribution of food, while the Hebraic widows had advocates at the table power, as well as cultural, linguistic, and relational advantages that led them to receiving superior treatment. So when you just want to boil things down and say, like, we just want to serve the poor, we just want to serve the vulnerable, we just want to serve those in need, um, there are still going to be blind spots because there are going to be disparities about uh, those individuals because of the falling, uh, the sliding scale of humanity and some of the issues of embodiment that we've talked about. And so I think we have to, the church right now is so scared of the particularities. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't want to believe that there really is a particularity to this. Uh, we want to do the universals. Let's just love the poor. Let's just go and share the gospel. Let's just, and, and all that's nuanced by the, 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 diversity of our embodiment, um, what it means to serve those who have mental health uh, challenges and those who don't, it's not the same thing. There's nuance in how you have to meet them and how you ultimately contextually walk with them and disciple them. Um, there's nuances to how you walk with, uh, I'll just talk about, um, you know, 
brothers and sisters who ha- are returning citizens and brothers and sisters who are just poor and never been incarcerated. There's nuances because their life experiences are so different. And if we're not willing to get down into the nuance, then we're ultimately going to have a generic evangelism that's not really contextual and going to meet people in the most meaningful and profound and transformative ways. And so what I'm trying to encourage us to say is let's not be afraid of the nuance. Let's believe that the same spirit who is helping us to see the nuance exist is going to be the same spirit that sustains us as we press into the nuance and is going to allow us to pro- uh, proclaim and demonstrate the most transformative gospel for the folks that we're trying to meet, walk alongside of, and disciple. Well, so good, so good. You know, Dominique, as we get ready to wrap up here, uh, I want you to maybe help us understand better understand bringing together the study aspect and the experience aspect. I mean, you, you did that for a long time. You led an emergence experience called Sankofa. And um, just if, as we wrap up here, uh, can you give us a short story of how that experience has has helped others kind of move forward beyond just the Bible study into an, an actual lived experience? Yeah, I'll give you a good example. Um, so a few years ago, we were leading a trip. Uh, and just quickly, for folks who don't know, Sankofa essentially is like a replication of the 1960 Freedom Rides, where we bring people together for a three and a half day bus journey throughout the Southeast, where we go to historically significant monuments, where blood has been shed for the fight for freedom and equality, and particularly where the church has borne a faithful witness in the midst of a culture that wasn't, you know, receptive to that. And so we uh, replicate that. And I had a, a man, a white male who came on the trip who, you know, he was, he was interested in the conversations, but had some concerns about some of what we might talk about. And by the time we ended the trip, he confessed the ways in which he was blinded to some of the things coming in. He lamented the way in which that led him to miss missional opportunities and to authentically love his neighbors who were different than him around him. And he repented and said that he was going to literally spend the rest of his life working towards a more faithful witness rooted in the fact that diversity is part of God's original intent and the missional working of the kingdom. And he went and he wrote a a book of poems um, that was all committed to the call to be ambassadors of reconciliation and what our potential is if we are really willing to open ourselves up to the leading of the spirit, to have a transformed mind and and witness uh, based on how we see, define, and love our neighbors. And so this is just a beautiful example. Um, We've had another a number of denominational leaders from other denominations come on the trip and ultimately go and start uh, what would be equivalent to Love, Mercy, Do Justice initiatives within their own denominational structure. Um, This has been a hallmark discipleship experience for us in our denomination for 23 years. So good. You've been listening to Dominique Du Bois Gilliard. Be sure to check out his book, Subversive Witness. You can also learn more about Dominique and his ministry at dominiquegilliard.com. Thanks again for listening to the Sets of Church Leaders podcast. You can find more interviews as well as other great content for ministry leaders at churchleaders.com. And if you found our conversation helpful today, we'd love for you to take a few moments, go over to Apple Podcast and leave us a review. That'll help other ministry leaders find our content more easily. You can find this podcast as well as other great Christian podcasts on the Faith Play app available for both Apple and Android. We'll see you on the next episode. You've been listening to the Stetzer Church Leaders podcast. For more great interviews, as well as articles, videos, and free resources, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.